0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com.
1: Hear the word of the Lord, Mark 6, 14-29. Jesus became so well known that Herod the ruler heard about him. Some people thought he was John the Baptist who had come back from life with the power to work miracles. Others thought he was Elijah or some other prophet who had lived long ago. But when Herod heard about Jesus, he said, This must be John. I had, I had his head cut off, and now he has come back to life. Herod had earlier married Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. But John had told him, It isn't right for you to take your brother's wife. So in order to please Herodias, Herod arrested John and put him in prison. Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she could not do it, because Herod was afraid of John and protected him. He knew that John was a good and holy man, even though Herod was confused by what John said. He was glad to listen to him, and he often did. Finally, Herodias got her chance when Herod gave a great birthday celebration for himself and invited his officials, his army officers, and the leaders of Galilee The daughter Herodias came in and danced for Herod and his guests. She pleased them so much that Herod said, Ask for anything, and it's yours. I swear that I will give you as much as half of my kingdom if you want it. The girl left and asked her mother, What do you think I should ask for? Her mother answered, The head of John the Baptist. The girl hurried back and told Herod, Here and now, on a serving plate, I want the head of John the Baptist. Herod was very sorry for what he had said, but he did not want to break the promise he had made in front of his guests. At once he ordered a guard to cut off John's head there in prison. The guard put the head on a serving plate and took it to the girl. Then she gave it to her mother. When John's followers learned that he had been killed, they took his body and put it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Now, this passage of scripture that we're studying this morning, surprisingly, it has inspired much art. Um, I was going to have it scrolling. But go ahead and just show a few of those that you can, if you want to, put them up there. In the past two thousand years, uh, much poetry, uh, many plays, several operas, movies have all been written about this text today. Um, from in. From artists as wide-ranging as Oscar Wilde to U2, this, they've all kind of mused about this encounter between John the Baptist, Herod, and Herodias, and Herodias' daughter. Now, what it is, it's a lesson on beauty. It's a lesson on sensuality. It's a lesson on the dangers of putting second things first. This morning, we're gonna be taking a look at what happens to a person, what happens to a soul, what happens to a human being when, it, when they try, like we all do, we, they try to isolate beauty from truth. We're going to discover that everything beautiful is governed by truth. And when a person denies the truth that governs beauty, listen, beauty becomes a monster that devours us. What do I mean by that? Everything in our culture, everything in our world is governed by laws or truth. Gravity, for instance. It's a law. Like it or not, you drop a rock or an ESV study Bible off the back balcony, and it's going to break someone's neck on the, on the bottom row, right? Or the back row here. It's going to cause pain. It's going to be painful. It's a law. You break gravity. You break the law at your own peril. Well, beauty has its own laws as well. And you can can shut the, the, the things off now. Beauty has its own law as well. Think about fire. My brother and I built a gas fireplace in my backyard a few years ago. And I love, one of my favorite things to do is sit on the back deck and stare at this fire, right? It's beautiful. But, I mean, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. It's absolutely captivating. And have you ever seen a child witness fire for the first time? What do they do? What do they do? It's beautiful. They see it. And what do they do? They go for it, right? They want to grasp it. They want to bring that beauty into themselves. They want to possess the beauty, right? They want to take it into themselves. But what do we do? We, we hold them back, right? We warn them. We tell them that there's a truth that governs this beauty, that yes, it's beautiful. Yes, you want to take it up and hold it and possess it. You want to touch it. But if you do, you're going to be hurt. It's going to cause a lot of pain. It's beautiful, but everything beautiful is governed by truth. And the truth is that fire, though it's beautiful, its flame bites back, If you try to possess it, if you try to take it out of the fire pit or the fireplace, fire will actually destroy you. One little flicker of flame can burn an entire city down. Fire is beautiful when it's used according to truth, when it's used um, parallel to its truth. But if you try to remove it from its truth, it's incredibly destructive. Now, in the Old Testament, there's this book called Proverbs. And it's a book of wisdom. It's meant to make immature people mature. It's meant to make foolish people wise. It was written by, most of it was written by Solomon, who is known as the wisest man who has ever lived, except for Jesus. And in Proverbs chapter six, Solomon is speaking as a father to his son. And this is what he says in verses 20 through 32. My son... Keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching, okay? Mom and dad, they may seem like fools, but they're not, kids. Listen to them. Bind these teaching on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, okay? So, the laws, the, 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 the ways that our parents have taught us, and specifically if they were teaching us the word of God, they're meant to light up our dark room. They're mo- meant to give us ability to see in the dark and walk wisely and not trip over things, okay? Listen. For the commandment is a lamp and a teaching of light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. You're gonna need to be corrected. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. But a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on coals and his feet not be scorched? So so is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he will still pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He who does it Destroys himself. Now, let me simplify what Solomon is saying here for the sake of time. One, young men, young women, well, actually all of us today, do not let beauty into your heart without the truth right alongside it. Do not let beauty into your heart, ungoverned beauty into your heart without the truth right alongside it. If you do, it's like taking fire into your lap. Bringing it close to your chest. And you will lose everything. You will even destroy yourself. And Solomon here is speaking about sexuality. He's saying sex is like everything else in this world. It's governed by certain truths. And if you break those laws, you break yourself. Now, if that is true, and there's certain laws that govern Behavior and there's certain laws that govern gravity. And there's certain, if you know someone is breaking a certain law, that you know for sure it will cause them pain. It will. It's a child about to speak, stick their hand in the fire. Right? What is the most loving thing to do to such a person? Is it to go whatever suits your fancy? Right child sticking their hand in, it's beautiful, take it into yourself. What is the most loving thing to do? We know this. We warn, right? No, we might yell even, whoa, 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 whoa. We might scoop them up. Whatever we can do. Freak them out. They might start crying. Why? Because we don't want them to break themselves. We don't want them to burn themselves. We don't want them to be hurt by not respecting beauty and trying to cross the line. Beauty is attractive. It's meant to pull us in. But if we lose sight of the truth, beauty will consume us and destroy us. Well, it just so happens that's exactly what's going on in our text today. If you go to Mark chapter 6, what does John the Baptist do? Well, this is kind of exactly where we find ourselves. John the Baptist has been warning Herod. Herod has placed his hand in the fire. He's crossed the line sexually, and John the Baptist is warning him. Now, who are we talking about? This is Herod Antipas, the youngest son of Herod the Great, right? Not the best family to grow up in. Now, Herod Antipas had risen to power by usurping his older brother, and this is terrible. Herod Antipas, he goes to his brother's kingdom, his brother's castle. He lays hold to his brother's wife and his passions say, I want her. And so he takes her. And so Herod Antipas divorces his wife and marries his brother's wife, Herodias. Okay? Do you see what's going on here? Herod is a man who's led by his emotions. He's led by his passions. The flame of sexuality and sensuality arises. He sees a beautiful woman, even though it's his brother's wife, and he says, I want her. And what does John the Baptist do? Does John the Baptist say, well, live and let live? Doesn't hurt anybody. Two consenting adults. What does John the Baptist do? Let's take a look. look at verse, we're gonna start in verse 18 then we're gonna work our way back. Verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John's saying it is not lawful. Well, what does that mean? John was a prophet. He was on mission from God to speak the truth. But truth that gets in the way of what people desire is rarely popular. We find ourselves in a very similar situation today. What does John mean when he says, it is not lawful? To answer that, we must answer this question. What is marriage? What is marriage? Now, I'm just gonna give you, I I can't build this entire thing out today, so I'm just gonna have to give you some big picture things that scripture teaches, okay? Here we go. What is marriage? To answer that, it's right. let me just answer it really quick. Here it is. Here's, here's what marriage is according to the scriptures. One man and one woman in a comprehensive union, body, mind, and soul for the rest of their lives, no matter how difficult. Now, I know that def- definition probably offends every person in this room. One man... One woman in a comprehensive union, body, mind, and soul for the rest of their lives, no matter how difficult. Now, first off, that's, I'm going to say that's the truth that governs it. I could give you a lot of scripture and build it out. I will a little bit. But I want you to see, this is what I want you to see, not just the truth, but why it's beautiful. I want you to see that that's true, but it's also beautiful. This is the beauty of marriage. One, we see in this a remarkable diversity. Diversity. In God's idea, God's conception of what marriage is, we see a man and a, a male and a female, a man and a woman. We see diversity, that men are different than women, and they're meant to complement each other and work in union together. Okay? So this is masculine and feminine. There's a remarkable diversity in marriage. Secondly, we say it's a comprehensive and complementary union of body, mind, and soul. What does that mean? Well, in the book of Genesis, in the beginning, when God makes man and he fashions a mate for him, a woman, this woman surprisingly fits him face-to-face perfectly. That his physical body was created to perfectly unite biologically with the woman. Think about our reproductive systems. Every other system in our body functions on its own. My digestive system, right? I ate some eggs this morning. My digestive system doesn't need any help from any of y'all, right? My digestive system is doing all the work on its own. It can begin the process and finish the process, and it can do exactly what it was created to function Created to do the end, it's telos that's meant for it can it can reach that end. It's that, that that my digestive system can, not so with my reproductive system. My reproductive system is only fully operational when it is united with my wife Amanda's. The human body was made for a comprehensive and complementary union. When God brought the first woman. To the first man. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they both were naked and not ashamed. And then God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. See, so there's a biological complementarity, there's a biological comprehensive union that can only take place between a man and a woman. And God says, That's not all. This union is not just body. It's not just biological. It's also mind, heart, and soul. What do I mean by that? It's a male and a female committing to one another. The word the Bible uses is a covenant. That a man and a female covenant together to be there, to be loving in sickness and in death. Till the end. In riches or poverty, we will be there. We're we're not saying we're going to feel this way. We're saying we will be there. We're in a covenant before God. In sickness and in health until death does us part. And this union, now listen, it takes the union of two minds. It's more than just two bodies getting together. It takes the union of two minds. Two people need to be thinking the same thoughts about marriage. This is a life this is a lifetime commitment, a covenant we're making together. We're not going to give each other ways out. We're going to commit through the long haul to be there no matter how we feel. It's a lifelong, sacred institution between a man and a woman. And then listen, this is why God says, God says it's in this type of commitment where you've covenanted to one another that you're going to share everything, body, mind, soul, heart. You're gonna share everything and we're gonna lock it down. Okay? We're in a covenant, we're locking it down together. Now, this is the only safe environment for sex. Why? Because sex is the ultimate vulnerability. It's giving yourself sexually to another person. You're in an ultimately vulnerable position. And the only right place to do that is when you've already surrendered and you've already been vulnerable in other areas of your life financially, mentally, emotionally. You're and you're in the fireplace, let's say. You're in a covenant of marriage. Now, sex, like the, like Solomon said, it's 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 like fire, right? It's beautiful but it's also dangerous. The fire needs to stay in the fireplace and sex needs to stay in the marriage or else we risk, listen, we risk losing the beauty of marriage and the truth will eventually destroy us. Now, how are we trying to redefine marriage today? Now, let me just, I'm gonna use, I'm gonna really give you one point and two little, um, because we've changed this one thing, everything else is changing about what we think marriage is. Number one, this is it. This is why, this is what has changed about marriage. It is no longer a covenant of two people before God saying, no matter how I feel, I will love you. When I'm mad at you, I will love you. When I'm upset with you, I will love you. When I failed you, I will love you. When you fail me, I will love you. I will forgive you. It's no longer locked down in a covenant that says, we're in it for the long haul. I commit to love you for the Christian like Christ loves the church. It's no longer about that. Now, and this has been a subtle change, but it's changed everything. We see marriage today primarily as an emotional connection. The person I'm most most emotionally connected to. Because we see it primarily as emotion, a couple things have happened, many things have happened. Number one, it doesn't take a covenant. We see people, well, I'm already emotionally connected to this person. I don't need to even get married if I don't want to. Two, it's e- I'm no longer emotionally connected to this person. We get divorced. See, it's a contract. It's, it's easy to get out of now. We have no-fault divorce. You go your way, I go my way. Many people are choosing not to get married. They're living together before marriage. Why? Because we think of it primarily in terms of emotion. It's an emotional connection. And if it's emotional connection it's primarily an emotional connection, then how can we deny it to anyone? If it's an emotional connection, how how can we deny it between two men or two females? Or how can we deny it between a female and two men? Or two females and one man? If it's primarily an emotional connection, and I'm maybe 50 years old, and I haven't been married, and I've got a good buddy, I've been roommates since college, let's just get married better for taxes. We're buddies. It's emotional. When it's an emotional connection, when it's governed by an emotional connection, you you lose marriage. Totally. You lose it. Now, isn't it, it's fascinating to me when I read this text and John the Baptist gets in trouble for telling a man who he could love. That's how we say it today. Who are you to tell me who I can love? Emotional connection. John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is in prison. It's interesting. We're going to read this here. He's in prison. And Herod is so intrigued by this man who's righteous, this man who doesn't uh, cave. He, he has a backbone, a, a spiritual backbone, according to the word of God. Herod is so attracted to this truth that he says he keeps bringing him in, London him preach. That's just fascinating. He, he's just fascinated by John the Baptist. And every time John the Baptist, can you imagine this? Now listen, when I preach a sermon like this, there's people in here that are going, oh man, he's talking to me, he's talking to me. Who told him, who told him? I had, I had somebody tell me that one time they were sitting there and the guy elbowing me goes, he's talking about us. He's talking about us, right? Now there's a lot of people in this room, I'm probably talking to a lot of people in this room that I don't even know about. But can you imagine one-on-one, Told John the Baptist. John the Baptist goes, It's not lawful for you to be sleeping with your brother's wife, bro. It's not lawful. It's not right. He's calling him out. He's saying, This isn't right. You were led by your emotions, and your emotions led you wrong. Your emotions were wrong. Your feelings were wrong. Your sexual desires were wrong. It's not lawful. It's a sin. It's breaking the covenant of God, and it eventually it will break you. And not surprisingly, And this happens still today, right? Herodias hated the truth that governs beauty. Look at this. Let's uh, keep reading after uh, verse 19. And Herodias, that's Herod's new wife or his brother's wife, she had a grudge against John the Baptist and she wanted to put him to death, but she could not for Herod feared John. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, so Herod kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. See, what what is Herodias doing? How, How dare John the Baptist deny me who we say our relationship is sinful? How dare John the Baptist condemn what we are doing? How dare he? So she began to look for ways to have John killed. She was opposed to the truth that John preached. Now, this is important for us to realize. No person is neutral to the truth. Everyone has a stake in it. This is why when you uh, fill out your questionnaire for jury duty, right? I once got called to jury duty on a drunk driving case. The first question they asked me was, have you ever been affected by drunk driving? Why? Why? Because they know our experiences affect how we handle the truth. Our experiences reflect how we deal with the truth. My best friend growing up, he lost his father to a drunk driver. So, immediately, boom, I was thrown off the jury. Right? Why? They knew my experience of having my best friend growing up killed by a drunk driver, that was going to affect how I judged the case regarding this drunk driving case, right? So here's the deal. Albert, or, uh, Aldous Huxley, famous, famous atheist, he said this. He became an atheist in college. And he, he, was, he was not, uh, he didn't care to let people know why he became an atheist. He said, I was in college. I wanted to sleep with whoever I wanted to sleep with. And I knew I had to get rid of Christian morality, and to get rid of Christian morality, I had to get rid of the Christian God, so then I had to get rid of God altogether. So I really, I became an atheist so I could sleep with whoever I wanted to sleep with. That's why, and then I looked for reasons to make that acceptable to me. So I found enough, you know, philosophy to, I, I guess I could dismiss God so that I could sleep with whoever I wanted to sleep with. Herod here is in the same situation. Herod's wife is in the same situation. All of us, we have a stake in it. So we're not neutral to the truth. We're either rejecting it because it it contradicts us or maybe we've been changed and and God's done, and then we see it as good and we see it as beautiful and we see it as right. Let's keep reading here. Verse 20. Oh, I've already read that. For Herod feared John. It's interesting here. Herod is kind of equivocal to the truth. He's perplexed. He didn't really know what he believed, but he knew what he liked. He knew what he desired. He knew what felt good and what looked good. And I don't want us to miss how relevant this is for our own life today. Herod was like a squirrel in the middle of the road with oncoming traffic. He didn't know if he should follow the truth or follow his emotions. Should I go in my passions or should I turn back in repentance? Repentance. Should I get angry and lash out at John the Baptist or should I believe him and turn and change my life and let the truth and beauty change me? Right? And he's in the middle of the road. Should I go forward? Should I go backwards? He's in a tough spot. I don't think some of us in this room are in this same situation today. Let me say, you might not like the message I have today. It might frustrate you because I'm saying something that just gets, I mean, you're, you're probably doing something that we're talking about here. You're, you're sleeping with someone outside the covenant of marriage, right? You're addicted to pornography. You're trying to convince yourself that it's fine, that it's okay. You're flirting with an affair right now. You're flirting with someone at work and you're contemplating it. You're thinking about stepping over that line and, and you hear me say some, what I'm saying today and you might be just like Herodias, just angry at me. How dare he say that? How dare he deny me what I feel and deny me what I want? But I want you to see, this is a moment of doubt, okay? This this. this from Herod, where he's being confronted by the truth, and he's in the middle of the road, it's a gift from God. And for you this morning, it's a gift from God. It's a moment where you're meant to doubt your own motivation. You're meant to doubt your own way of life. Herod was heading down a path that was headed to his own destruction. He was putting his hand in the fire. He had brought that fire into his lap, and he was going to be burned. So God sent John the Baptist to, to him to warn him and offer him the grace of repentance. I know there are, this is many of us in this room. This is a message for all of us in this room. You're trying to chase beauty and embrace beauty without the truth. You want beauty on your own terms. You're following your heart. You're letting your emotions guide you. But please hear this as the most loving thing I can do for you. Look at Herod. This is a moment of doubt that is sent to him by God so that he would look at his life, hear the truth, doubt his feelings, and make a decision for his own ultimate good. God wants it to go well for Herod and God wants it to go well for you. So God sent John the Baptist to Herod and God sent John the Baptist to us this morning so that we can read it. Look at verse 21. Here's where it all comes down. So here's the thing. He's in the middle of the road. He could choose one way or the other. And here comes a showdown. Here comes... The showdown where, where there is no turning back. Look at verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced. First off, let me just say, this is his niece. Okay? This is his niece. She pleased Herod and his guests. Now, we don't have much details what kind of dance this is, but I don't think uh, it takes much in the way of your imagination. Look at his response. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. Now, I doubt she was tap dancing. Okay? To cause a man to say half, and he didn't have, he couldn't even do this, by the way, because he's under Roman rule. Half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. Right? We know what kind of dance this was. This is a man who's led by his passions. He's a man who's led by his sexual desires, and it doesn't matter if it's his niece. There's no boundaries for him. Take it into your lap. Do what you want to do. Do what feels right. I'm reminded of, well, I won't even say that. Never mind. Let's keep going. Verse 23. Verse 23. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out. And she said to her mother, for what should I ask? What do you want for Mother's Day, Mom? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, and he he caves. He gives it to her. What's going on here? Beauty, sexuality, emotion was more powerful to Herod than truth. He knew that John was righteous, but he was led away by his passions. This isn't surprising. Now, let me take a moment and say Beauty and truth, in reality, they're not at odds at all. All truth is God's truth. All beauty is God's beauty. Truth and passion are not juxtaposed. Here's the truth about beauty and sexuality. It was created by God to unite a man and a woman in a comprehensive way, body, soul, mind, two into one, all of our passions. And, we ha- and many of us have a lot of passions, All of our passions were meant for our spouse, for the purpose of our enjoyment and unification, for building the marriage. Therefore, any deviance from that, from God's created order, only creates problems. Now, there's two, primarily two ways our culture deals with our passions. What are passions? What are these desires that we have in us? There's primarily two ways we deal with them. Here's one. They're, they're, I'm going to read a. I'm going to read a song that's been downloaded about three million times in the past year or so, and I'm going to read you some of the lyrics. I think they show both paths that our culture takes. What should we do with our passions? First, don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know, okay? What's it saying? Here's the first option that you do with your desires. Stuff them. Conceal. Don't feel, right? Stuff your desires, and what what eventually happens? What eventually happens? We should know this, right? Sex is bad. Sex is dirty. Sex is naughty. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it. Suppress the desires. What usually happens? When you stuff something, pop. Binge. Explosion. And then what do we do? If we do that, then what do we do? I lo- so let's just use our great girl Elsa here, right? Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Well now they know. Well now they know. Pop. There they went. So now what would we do? Option two. We all know. We all know. Let it go. Right? Let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go. Let it go. I don't care what they're going to say. Let this, right? I don't care what they're going to say. Just go with it. Just let it go. There's no limits anymore. There's no wrong. There's no rules. There's no right. Just let them go. And what does that look like? That's lust. That's promiscuity. That's porn. That's masturbation. That's divorce. That's adultery. That's sex outside of marriage. Just let it go. That's taking the fire out of the fireplace. What do we say? Oh, it doesn't hurt anyone. That's, you have to be ignorant to say that. Okay, let me just see, hear this. Poverty is one of the greatest problems in our society today. You know who the number one person is who's likely to be Poor. Single mom. Why is she single? Because she let it go. Because he let it go. Because he's not a man and can't stay and take care of his babies. Because it wasn't... Children born outside of wedlock are six times more likely to live under the poverty level. Six times. And we say it doesn't hurt anyone. And I could give you a million statistics, but I don't think we're really... Most of us aren't moved by statistics, so I'm not going to. It hurts a lot of people. This is, uh, there's a great book, an old book written in 1890 called The Picture of Dorian Gray, and it's by Oscar Wilde, and he's wrote a play um, called, uh, on on this text, actually, and The Picture of Dorian Gray is about a man, and it's really the story of his life. He didn't know it was going to be, but it ended up being the story of his life, and in this picture, there's, there's a, there's a, or in this book, there's a man who wants to follow his passions, and this guy, paint, he was very good-looking man, debonair, well-dressed, a dandy. And he, this guy painted him, and the painting was so beautiful. Um, and long story short, basically they put a spell on it that whatever he did in his life, the repercussions would go to the painting and not him. So the painting became his soul, okay? Okay. So what happens? Well, the first time he realizes this because he doesn't know what happens, he uh, treats his wife really poorly and he rebukes her. She wants to quit the opera and he rebukes her. The only reason I loved you is because you were in the Shakespeare play. That's what I loved about you. That was the most beautiful thing. And he goes and he, and he loved this painting of himself. So he'd go and he went to look at the painting and he noticed that the face had like a snarl. That The face was, was bent and, and marred and he began to put two and two together and he began to follow his passions more and more and more and in himself his he looked beautiful it's not hurting anyone this looks he looked beautiful for 18 years he followed this path of his lifestyle and he just always he continued to look beautiful um, sex outside of marriage sex with different women crushed his wife his wife ended up killing her or wife was ended up dead really early sex with men sex just followed his passion wherever it led him wherever it led him it took him and this painting got darker and darker and darker and looked like a monster because his soul was being affected and he didn't know it. And then one day the painter walked into uh, the, the attic where he had this painting hidden and the painter saw the ugliness of him. And Dorian Gray couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle anyone knowing what his soul looked like. Anyone knowing that though he looked like he was living this lavish life and he was enjoying so much freedom and he was taking sex outside of the bonds and he was just enjoying the fire in his lap and it wasn't affecting him at all. Once somebody saw what it was really doing to his soul, he took out a knife and killed him. And the end of the story, come, when it comes to the end of the story, he has hurt everyone. he's really destroyed nearly every relationship in his life. In his real life, it, it, look, it just follows a similar trajectory. He dies penniless, with nobody at the, very few people at his funeral, no, no, no friends. In the end, he stabs the painting. He stabs the painting, he stabs the picture, he stabs his own soul, and people hear the shriek from outside, and they run in the room, and they look on the floor, and they don't even, they don't even recognize it. It looks like a monster that everything that was in the painting had become himself. It was a shriveled up man, a shriveled up monster. And all his life, it's not affecting him, it's not hurting him, but he can't see his own soul. He can't see what it's doing to his heart, what it was doing to the painting. Now, listen, there's, that's the two ways we've got, right? Conceal, don't feel, or let it go. God has a different way. We've already talked about it. God isn't just let it go. God isn't just conceal, don't feel. God has given us a channel for our passions and our desires, and this channel is marriage. In marriage, in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime, this is the channel that our passions must flow through. In marriage, we are free. We can let it go with our spouse. But we do resist things that are outside the law of God. This keeps the fire in its place. It teaches us to love our spouse above all others. It's the best, statistically even, it's the best, safest, and healthiest environment to raise children in, okay? Children with their biological mom and dad statistically are off the charts compared to any other situation. But we have, well, let me just say this. God is not conceal, don't feel. God is not just let it go. God is not anti-sex. God is not anti-passion or anti-beauty. That's absurd. The Bible is filled with some of the most provocative and passionate sexual language. Men, okay? We have a Bible verse that commands us to be satisfied with our wife's breasts. I'm gonna put that on a coffee cup. That's going to Father's Day, okay? Right? We have a Bible verse that says that. I want the T-shirt. <laughs> Never seen that at the Christian bookstore. But we have that verse. Listen, it's funny, but we have that verse and we have that command to us. His commands are not burdensome, by the way. He, we have that command to us because of sin. Sin has bent us in such a way where we don't desire monogamy. Realize emotion And monogamy don't go together. We don't want to be satisfied. If God says you can have one wife, we want two. If God says you can have 10 wives, we'd want 11. If God says comprehensive union between an opposite sex, we want the same sex as well. We always want beauty outside the lines, we want fire in our lap. Why? Why? Why do we have these desires? Why do we want beauty so much even though it can destroy us? Why? Why? This is where only the story of scripture makes sense. The Bible says our desires have been corrupted because we place something other than God at the center of who we are what do we put at our center? Ask yourself, when you're alone in an empty room, where does your imagination go? Business? Money? Boyfriend? Girlfriend? Hobbies? Does it go to God? Does it go to his grace? Does it go to Christ? This is usually a pretty good diagnostic of what your center is. Now you can, everybody, oh God's my center. Everybody says that. But when you're alone in an empty room, what do you think about? And here's the truth. Anything other than God at your center will eventually crush you. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said in his book um, God in the Dock about he talks about he has an essay in there called First Things and Second Things. The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses in the end not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. If you put a dog at the center of your life, it like lowers you on the food chain, okay? It might even cause you to walk behind said dog and pick up its excrement, okay? It might, and put it in, its, all right, put it in your pocket. That's a little strange to me still when I watch people in my neighborhood. I'm like, who's leading who here? Oh, there it is, <laughs> right? You put a dog, at the, it's gonna lower your human usefulness. Now let's just keep reading. Listen, that one's kind of funny. But the man who makes alcohol... His chief good loses not only his job, but his palate and power of enjoying the earlier and only pleasurable levels of intoxication. What's he saying? An alcoholic, a man who puts alcohol at the center of him, can't even enjoy a beer because he, he wants to drink to get drunk. He wants, it's, it, it, it possesses him, it takes him over, so he can't even enjoy the joy of a lesser thing. Now listen to this. It's a glorious thing to feel for a moment or two that the whole meaning of the universe is summed up in one woman. Glorious. So long as other duties and other pleasures keep tearing you away from her. What does that mean? To think one woman, the whole sun is going around because of this one woman. He's saying it's great as long as you got a job and you got to keep going back to that job and you get pulled away from her. Absence makes the heart go fonder, right? It's great as long as you get pulled away from her. But what's he say? Listen. but clear the decks and so arrange your life as it sometimes is feasible that you'll have nothing to do but to contemplate her and what happens. When I moved to Omaha, uh, I didn't think I was going to have to get a regular job. I thought I could just stay with my, my wife and do my church planning residency and, and, uh, and have enough support that I could just stay there. And it was We had two kids at the time and I was in this upper third floor little apartment, right, little two bedroom apartment. And it was about two months of me in that room. Nothing really to do. I had to I study, do some reading, but I could just hang out all day with my family. It's about two months before my wife applied for a job for me, right? Come back and say, what? She's like, oh, I applied to Whole Foods for you. I'm like, you, okay, I'm getting the message here, right? I'm getting the message. What's he saying? He's saying this. If you clear the decks and you go, I love this woman. She's the best thing that's ever happened to me. It's just me and you all day long. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? That's going to work for about a week, right? And then you're like, uh, no. Right? You need these things to pull. Why? Because animals, alcohol, even women and sex and sexuality and men, these are second things. They're not first things. Now, listen. This is what he says. You can't get second things by putting them first, You get second things only by putting first things first. He said it this way in another letter. Put first things first, and you get second things thrown in. Put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. We never get, say, even the sensual pleasure of food at its best when we're being greedy. So he's saying if you put first things first, you get second things thrown in. If you put second things first, you lose them both. This is the problem Herod has. This is the problem we have. He doesn't deal with first things first. He jumps right to second things. When I'm sharing my faith, I'm trying to convince someone of the gospel and I'm sharing the gospel with them. This is a problem that a lot of us have. We want to ask second questions before we ask first questions. What do I mean by that? John the Baptist doesn't go, is John's God real? John the Baptist doesn't go, is Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, who spoke the galaxies into existence, who lived and he's about to be, about to be right for us, who's dead and resurrected. But him, is this this really God's son? That's first question. That's putting first things first. What does John, or what does Herod do? How's this gonna affect my sex life? Will this relationship with God, with John the Baptist, with Jesus? Will this change who I can sleep with? Now, do you see how he's putting second things first? And the funny thing is, second things only flow from first things. If I say, listen, if you answer the first question, no, Jesus is not the Son of God, then it doesn't matter who you sleep with. It doesn't matter what his rules regarding sexuality are. It doesn't matter what he says about money. It doesn't matter what he says about community. It doesn't matter what he says about faith and repentance. If he's not the son of God, that's a first question. You answer that, then you dismiss everything else. But if the first answer to the question, the first answer to the first question is yes, for us, did Jesus rise from death? If the question is Yes, and the answer to that question is yes, then how could we not logically listen to him about when it comes to secondary things? If he is the Son of God who's eternally existed as the second member of the Trinity, he might know a thing or two that we don't, even about secondary issues like sex. So if you're not a Christian, you shouldn't be asking, What's God's opinion on sex? What does God say about who I can and can't love or who I can and can't be in a sexual relationship with? You shouldn't even ask that question until you've answered the first one. Did Jesus rise from death? That's a first issue. That's a first thing that you have to can be confronted with. Was Jesus real? Was he the son of God? Was he crucified? Did he, ri- did he rise from death? If you can answer yes to those questions, then we might be able to, we should move on to those secondary questions about who we can or can't sleep with. But Herod didn't do that. Why? Because we don't want to do that. I'd rather argue about who, well, that's your morality, that's my morality, there's a lot of different moralities in the world, what's right for you might be wrong for me. We want to do all this weird stuff instead of going to these first questions. And what is it? He's the indecisive squirrel in the road. Hearing John gladly, perplexed by the truth, but enticed by his own emotions. And and we know what happens to the indecisive squirrel. We all see it. Right? We all know what happens to the indecisive squirrel. Tragedy happens, right? But like John the Baptist, we are living in an age where no one has the right to tell me how to live my life. We want beauty divorced from truth. So we're going to be people, if we're going to be people who value beauty, which we better be, our God is beautiful, but who also value the truth that governs beauty, then we need to be prepared to be treated like John. And I'm just going to say that. Let's read. Verse 25. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths, And his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. Happy Mother's Day. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Whew, following Jesus did not go well for John. Well, actually, you know what? It did go well. This is a glorious ending to a man of God who stood up for the truth, who lovingly confronted someone that he loved. I guarantee you. Listen, when you, read, when you hear John the Baptist and he's saying, it's not lawful, don't see the angry people on the side of the road with the signs that say sinful, horrific things like God hates fags. Don't see that on John the Baptist's face. See tears in his eyes. See a pastor, see a shepherd pleading with his people, say, don't put your hand in the fire. Don't put your hand in the fire. John the Baptist used illustrations like like a spider dangling over the flame that its web can go in one second. here. And see John the Baptist with tears in his eyes, saying, "Herod, it's not lawful. It's not going to go well for you. Repent, turn from your sins, listen to the truth." And he gets beheaded, and he gets caught up in the glory of God. Now, this is this is why I want to go back. This is the scary thing. We live like our decisions don't matter i can have sex with who i want to today and next year i'll repent i can live i can do whatever i want to in my body today and it's not affecting me young man i can look at whatever pornography i want to and it's not affecting me it is affecting you. Studies are showing it's rewiring your brain. It's changing the way the neurons and the neural connectors are working in your brain. It's changing the way you think, the way you feel, the release of hormones. It's changing you biologically looking at this pornography. It's changing you. And you think, hey, I'm going to do it today. And tomorrow, I'll repent. Next week, I'll repent. When I get get married, then I'll finally be set free. And I'll finally be delivered of pornography. It's not going to work like that. And you're not guaranteed repentance tomorrow. You're only guaranteed grace today. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? Now, I know his mercies are new every morning, but we're not guaranteed that our heart is gonna be ready to receive it anytime but right now. Look at what happens. Go back to verse 14. Jesus is out preaching, doing all these miracles, right? Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are working work in him. But others said, no, he's Elijah. And others said he's a prophet. So everybody's talking about Jesus. He's doing all kinds of miracles. Everybody knows he's not a normal man. Something's different about him. Look at here, verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. When Herod hears about Jesus, he thinks John the baptizer has come back from the dead. What's happening? See, he ignored the truth, he wanted beauty outside the lines, and now the truth that governs all beauty has struck his conscience. He's guilty. He feels isn't it weird that nobody wants to be judged today, right? None of us want to be judged. Why do we feel judged? I think in one say we say, hey, I'm human, to err is human. We all get humans aren't perfect, but why do we feel judged all the time? Why do we not like anybody pointing out when we're not perfect? Maybe it's because there's a memory trace in the human soul that we actually have a judge on high. We actually have someone watching us at all times marking down our behavior, marking down what we do with our lives. And Herod, who's thrown off all restraint and he's living like there is no God, He hears of this new man preaching this gospel, doing miracles, and his guilt and his shame and his conscience rises up and says, oh, it's a ghost. It's the guy you killed. It's the thing you did come back to haunt you. He feels guilty. He's haunted by his sin. He doesn't know how to get rid of his guilt and his shame for one strip tease. He killed the righteous man. And the saddest thing is that Jesus is the only one who can forgive him. Jesus is the only one who can deliver him from his fears and clean him from his uncleannesses and remove the guilt and remove the shame from him. He's the first thing. Jesus is. And if you put him first, you get everything else thrown in. Seek me first and my kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. But if you put second things first, passion and pleasure, you're gonna lose the first thing. You're gonna lose Christ. See, for Herod, his moment has already passed. This is sad. He had his chance at repentance with John the Baptist, and that chance is not guaranteed again. When Jesus shows up, he can't see Jesus. His guilt, his shame, it's in the way. He can't see Jesus. Jesus. He wanted beauty with no boundaries, beauty without truth, and the truth eternally crushed him. And then obviously beauty eventually escapes him too. You get old, you wrinkle, you everything gets old and rusts and dies. So if beauty is your chief good, you're going to lose it anyways. See? He put second things first and he lost first things. Herod made his choice. And it's sad. You think, oh no, Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus would give him a second chance. At the end of the gospel, Jesus gets par- he gets beat. He gets paraded in front of Herod. Herod says, who are you? What say you? Jesus doesn't open his mouth. Herod, your time of repentance is gone. It's past. Remember John the Baptist? My cousin, that righteous man, You had the moment. He he brought the truth to you with tears in his eyes, weeping. He pleaded, turn to Jesus. Turn to the Father. Repent of your sin. And you had his head cut off because of a strip tease from your niece. So now as I stand before you, your time's gone. Jesus doesn't open his mouth. He puts second things first. Now listen, what's gonna change us? We're pulled by beauty. What's gonna... By seeing the beauty of God. That's what. What What do I mean by that? You gotta be captured by a greater beauty. Jesus, as the son of God, is or was the definition of ultimate beauty in heaven. The definition of ultimate beauty. And what did Jesus do? See this. See how beautiful this is. Jesus left that. He left that beauty behind in order to come to this earth in an unattractive human body. And do what? Suffer a brutal, humiliating, excruciating death. Just think about that. Meditate on that. Jesus in heaven was the epitome of beauty. And on the cross, he was so disgusting that men turned their faces from him. the beauty became disgusting. Not only that, but scripture says that God's eyes are so pure that he cannot look on evil without judging it. And his own son... Jesus took the world's evil, all of our sinfulness, all of our shame, all of our guilt for living outside the lines and trying to take beauty outside the lines. Hear me this morning. We've all sinned and fallen short. And on the cross, Jesus absorbed all of that evil into himself. And God looked at his own son, his beautiful son, the second member of the Trinity who is, they've been into each other from all eternity, okay? They're in perfect love. And he looked at his son on the cross and saw the ugliness of sin and turned his face away. Turned his face away and struck him. God has to punish sin. And if you've ever been sinned against, you know why God has to punish sin. Our society who doesn't want a God who judges forgets the Holocaust we need a God who judges, who's gonna wipe the evil off the earth. Why? Why would God do that? Why would the beautiful one become ugly for us and take our sin and God crush him so that we could be united with ultimate beauty and truth Forever. One day. We're not just going to see beauty and know truth. We're going to be caught up in it. In the new heavens and the new earth. We're not just going to see it and recognize it. We're going to be a part of it. We're going to live amongst it. There won't be any, that pull, that pull into beauty outside the lines. It won't be there. We'll be caught up in true beauty, ultimate beauty only when you meditate on that, only as you think about the beauty of Christ, only as you take that into yourself and see it as more and more and more and more beautiful and your own self as more and more and more wicked and ugly. But Christ gave it all for you. The more you do that, the more you'll be free. The more you'll be able to live with power to overcome the temptations to take beauty outside the lines here on earth. Here in this life. And I'm gonna say, men and women, this is a task that deserves our utmost focus, attention, soul, power, willpower. Every decision we make is from our heart, comes from our heart, comes from our emotions, comes from our affections. And we've got to get our heart through believing the gospel. They're seeing what Jesus has done for us. More caught up in the beauty of the cross than the beauty of whatever it is that we're chasing. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus and you have never embraced him by faith, let me see the beauty in it. All your sins wiped away. All your shame forgiven. This moment is offered to you. God sovereignly brought you here. There's no good sinners and bad sinners and really great sinners. We're sinners. Your hope is my hope. The righteousness of Jesus Christ gifted to us by the grace of God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done here. It's a serious thing. It's a very serious thing to stand before people and declare your word. We thank you for the faithfulness of John the Baptist. We thank you for the graciousness of Jesus to take our sins on the cross and to pay the price and pay the punishment so that we could go free, so that we could be caught up, so that we could share the ultimate beauty that he possessed in eternity that we get to be a part of that we get to share that in the new heavens and the new earth but god i pray that that knowledge would work itself back today and give us strength to fight our sin give us strength to follow you when our affections and our emotions are telling us to do sinful selfish things to deny the consequences to live for the moment father with the truth of the word of god change us in the moment? Would your spirit change us in the moment? And for those who are on the outside looking in and wondering, what would it look like to follow Jesus? I pray that they would ask first things first. Not second things. Not, well, what's it going to do with my sexual relationships? Or what's it going to mean about this or that? They would go to first things first. Is Jesus the Son of God? Was he crucified? Was he resurrected? And Father, you, through the power of your Holy Spirit and the preached word, that you would confirm those things for them. As we come to take the supper this morning, let us be reminded of our sin and the cost of our sin that you paid for us on the cross. That none of us are sinless. The only hope for us is the mercy and the kindness and the blood that is sprinkled on us that makes our sins, though they are scarlet, that makes it white as snow. Father, as we take in the supper today, let it be a means of grace for us that our hearts see the beauty of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.